first reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favours of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And now from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I might proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's uh, lovely to be here for round three. Thank you. And we're talking about compelling Christian community. And I've said um, a few times in our services that I've had the privilege of seeing quite a number of very fun churches in my, in my travels. And some of them have almost beggared belief and certainly confronted my Aussie cynicism about, uh, in particular, Americana big church. Uh, for example, Ada Bible Church in Grand Rapids, where I, I preach uh, fairly regularly, started as 100 people a uh, little community church. Uh, they've had one senior pastor, Jeff Mannion, for the whole 25 years. He's a superb Bible teacher, and it has grown to 10,000 people. Um, I've taken my kids uh, to this church uh, several times, and it's just wonderful to see them try and get their head around the idea of a church having a driveway longer than our street, uh, and also how important it is to have a climbing wall in the kids' space. Uh, the, <laughs> the other uh, mind-blowing, confronting church that I've visited is Saddleback Church. Uh, this started 30 years ago simply as a Bible study in Pastor Rick Warren's home. Um, now it's quite a bit larger than that. Excuse my uh, dodgy iPhone <clears throat> uh, filming here, but everything you can see there on the screen is actually part of the church campus. It's larger than the campus of Sydney University now. It has 30,000 people in small group Bible studies, and that's how they uh, determine their church numbers. They don't uh, think so much about the Sunday people that they come, uh, that, that come on a Sunday. They think about how many in Bible studies. Now, it's easy to be cynical. Yes, it's an Australian specialty, of course, but when you visit and get sort of inside what's going on, particularly in these two churches, it's confronting to see how 
godly and humble the two leaders of these churches are. Wonderful to see the um, educational programs they have running, the social programs. And in the case of Saddleback Church, uh, quite amazing that over the 30 years they've been running, they have sent out 5,000 overseas missionaries from one church. It is quite something. And I think we Australians, especially we Australian Sydney Anglicans, can be very cynical about this sort of thing, really as a cover for our own lack of ambition in the Lord. And what I love about these two churches in particular um, and other churches that I've met that are like that isn't the visible success. It's the combination of this Godward attitude with a zeal for reaching out to others. Two things combined. We might call it worship and mission. And of course the two are connected. The more awestruck we are at God's love and power, the more willing we will be to do anything to promote His glory and love to others. Or as I'm going to put it repeatedly in this message, the more upward our vision, the more outward our ambition. And our text is Acts 2, that incredible paragraph we've been studying uh, together over three weeks. I've said it's not exactly a prescription for church life, but nor is it merely a description of the very first church. It's more like a paradigm, an ideal. Luke deliberately, in writing Acts, has this paragraph to tell us all of the beautiful things the very first church did. Uh, so far, we've seen that they were an educational community. That was week one. We've also seen that they were family last week. We looked at the way they shared life with each other and shared uh, resources. But I want also to notice the way Luke stresses how they looked upward, upward to God. I know it's kind of obvious, but it shouldn't be left unsaid that Christian community is fundamentally upward to God. We're not just a rotary club or a musical society or a school, even though we share elements with all of those things. We're a community of worshippers. We look up. Notice, will you, all the ways that Luke stresses this. He says that they were devoted to various things, and the first is prayer. You see there in verse 42, they were devoted to prayer. Uh, then we're told in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. And then if you go down to the final uh, sentence uh, or two, verse 47, they were praising God as their normal mode of being. Let's capture that. Uh, prayer, awe, and praise. They were devoted to prayer. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us. Uh, they didn't just turn up for prayer. They didn't feel duty-bound to prayer. 
They were devoted, a word that means they gave their studied attention to prayer. And it's interesting to me uh, that this word devoted, proskaterio, for the nerds, uh, is used frequently in the New Testament in connection with prayer. And so we read it in Colossians 4.2, a different author, Paul, um, devote yourselves to prayer, exactly the same uh, word, being watchful and thankful. And in Romans 12.12, we read, be uh, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. But actually, the Greek word is prosketereo, it's the same word, devoted in prayer. John Calvin, the great 16th century reformer, uh, spoke of prayer as the chief exercise of faith. I was really struck when I first came across this, and his whole chapter on prayer begins with it being the chief exercise of faith. I was thinking, how is it the chief exercise of faith? And actually, he makes the argument that whether we are thanking God in prayer or asking God for things in prayer, prayer perfectly embodies dependence on God. And therefore, it's the chief exercise of prayer. One of the stunning churches in my travels, I think I told you about uh, on week one, uh, was Emmanuel Wimbledon. Wimbledon. And one of the things uh, that is striking about them is they give half of their annual budget away. Imagine that. To mission. The other striking thing is when they call a prayer meeting, half the church turns up. I mean, there are six or seven hundred person church and half the church will come. That's quite something. Church Hill has a strategic plan that places due priority on prayer. Uh, 1.2 of your strategic plan uh, says that we're going to be aiming for persistent prayer life. So you are hoping for these very things. The culture question asked here is, is Church Hill the kind of church where we plan to, as well as spontaneously, pray? I like both of those. How will we drive it, your plan says? Modelled in community groups? Nurturing prayer in Sunday services? Encouraged in one-to-one meetings and or in small groups? Creating individual prayer diaries in 2021? Prayer. The other upward dimension is in verse 43. Everyone was filled with all at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This word translated awe is phobos, from which we get phobia, means fear. They were fearful. But um, nine times out of ten in the New Testament, this kind of fear, awe, is toward God. Um, I don't think Luke is saying they were in awe of the apostles. I think he means they were in awe of what the Lord was doing through the apostles in these signs and wonders. And this is actually Luke's whole perspective in writing the book of Acts. And we know that because he says so in the opening line of the book of Acts. Here is his opening line. In my former book, Theophilus, remember this Luke who wrote Acts also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach 
until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Do you see the implication? Luke thinks what he's writing is is a two-volume thing. The first volume was what Jesus began to do. The second volume is what Jesus continued to do by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And that's the other thing I think worth noticing. These signs and wonders uh, are marks of the apostles. They are not marks of regular church. I think it would be wrong to see this reference to signs and wonders as if it were a prescription for signs and wonders in the modern church, that we should all be doing signs and wonders. And Justin, you know, is lacking in signs and wonders in the last year, and he should be reviewed. No. Luke is referring to the very same thing that Paul refers to as, quote, in uh, 2 Corinthians 2.12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. These are the apostolic signs. That said, we have no less reason for awe at God. We might not have staff members who can do the miracles and wonders of the apostles. Uh, Mind you, I should add that I believe in miracles. I believe in prayer for healing. I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit, even the spooky ones. But that's not what Luke is talking about. And we have the same awe at God's works, in creation, in redeeming us in Christ. We should be in awe at what God is doing in the mission. You think of um, what's happening in China, in Africa, in Iran, where the gospel is exploding like it looks like in the book of Acts. Awe is still part of the Christian life, of course. And awe often expresses itself in praise, the third dimension of this upward sense of the Christian life. Uh, We're told in verse 47 that they were praising God. The sense is iterative. This was their normal mode. They were praising God. And praise is the verbalization of our wonder. And in a sense, our awe of God and His works is incomplete unless we find ways together to say it, to express our wonder in praise. Let me try and give you an analogy that may or may not work. As implausible as it sounds, I ski a lot, right? Um, I'm not pretty. Uh, but I'm effective on the slopes. And uh, last year, uh, for whatever reason, um, I I, I ended up skiing a lot by myself. I couldn't find a ski buddy to go down with me. And so uh, several times I went down in his air in in Parisha, for those of you who know the slopes, and I I suddenly realised how important it is to have people with you when you get to the bottom of an awesome run to speak about your joy in the run. So I'd come down these runs, I'd be skiing, you know, pretty well, it was gorgeous, and I'd get to the bottom, and there was no one there to say, how awesome was that? How fun was that? And so my wonder was kind of trapped. (laughs) My joy wasn't able to be expressed. I couldn't praise, and of course, my point 
is that praise is the appropriate completion of our awe, of our wonder at God. Church is fundamentally Godward. And your strategic plan makes this perfectly clear. 2.1 speaks of joyful worship. Sunday services are joyful, appropriate, informative, challenging, lifting people to God, your plan says. Our lives are understood to be a spiritual act of worship. Our music, reading, praying, testimonies, sacraments are set at the highest quality. And outsiders who live in the city gain a sense that this is not a rotary club. It's a divinely created community. Let me be slightly controversial, which is the privilege of being a visitor. You may have noticed that our mob, Sydney Anglicans, um, can be very critical of Hillsong, Hillsong Church, um, for various reasons. But I want to say, having spent a decent amount of time with Hillsong leaders and so on, I actually think, whatever criticisms we might make, they have something over us. And it isn't the music, or the money, or the technology, and it isn't gospel light, as some people claim. It's a kind of abandonment to God. There's a, there's a real sort of Geronimo approach to their feeling about being a Christian. It isn't just entrepreneurialism. It's an abandonment to God in prayer, in awe, in praise. Whereas sometimes our version of Christianity worships God just to the borders of respectability and no further. Everything has to be conservative, plausible, sensible. But the more God would a church is, the less concerned it ought to be about appearing sensible. We should be less nervous about taking risks. True worship of God, I think, will lead to true innovation in reaching out to others. As I said earlier, the more upward our vision, the more outward our ambition. To my second point then, outward. You notice uh, Luke's ideal portrait of the church has already listed some inward activities. We might call them inward. So teaching, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's sort of inward. Um, sharing of life, you know, eating together and that, that sort of thing. But did you notice the very outward dimensions that Luke also refers to right at the end? Uh, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Public favor and growth in numbers. 
Now, it's important to understand, Luke, uh, in talking about this church enjoying favor, isn't saying that these Christians enjoyed favor with the other Christians, because this is all the Christians in the world here in this paragraph, all the Christians in the world. He's saying that little community of 3,000 people in Jerusalem won the favor of all the people, as in the residents of Jerusalem, those who don't believe. It's really interesting because Acts, the book of Acts, it is um, clear that persecution will come. In fact, if you were to turn over the page to Acts chapter 3, there's a whopping great big persecution that breaks out. So Luke's not saying, oh, there's never a persecution, you'll always find favor. No, that's not what he's saying. However, what often happens with some Christian communities is that we develop a persecution complex. You know, where we just think the world is always out to get us, the media is always mocking us, politicians are always blocking us, and it's, it's not real. We, we forget that actually winning favor is something to celebrate. It's an ideal. And in fact, um, Luke in his first volume said something similar about Jesus as he grew up, as a teenager. He, he said in Luke 2, then he went down with them, his parents, and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. And, did you know, the same thing is meant to be true of every minister. Um, I'm not sure, uh, you know, when I went through more college and was interviewed to be a minister, anyone ever asked, do people who don't believe regard you favorably? But actually, Paul said it is one of the demands of choosing ministers. So in 1 Timothy 3, he says, the overseer must not be a recent convert, fair enough, or he may be conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders. Wow. The word is testimony. Outsiders must give him a good testimony. So favor with those who don't believe is an ideal to celebrate. And it feels to me like in our context right now in Australia, uh, Australians have two um, perceptions of Christians sitting in their head at the same time. I can't remember if I've, I've talked about this with you before, but there was some really interesting research by McCrindle a few years ago that asked the average Australian, what's your perception of Christians? And they ranked the top 10 perceptions of Christians. And I'm sorry to say that 10 to 6 were not awesome. Hypocritical, opinionated, old-fashioned, judgmental, traditional. What's that? That's not so fun. But look at 5 to 1. Faithful, honest, kind, loving, caring. Who is this double personality Christian, <laughs> right? And the researchers uh, were themselves surprised at the results and, and reasoned that what's going on here is not that there are two different cohorts, you know, one cohort that has broadly negative views and another cohort that has, you know, broadly favorable views, that actually the, the same respondents in thinking about, you know, the, the ways of describing Christians might think, 
oh, that Christian reported on the ABC last night was a complete hypocrite. And they go, hypocrite. And then they go, oh, but Auntie Flo, she's really loving. Right? Tick. My point is, <laughs> Australians have two pictures of Christianity in their heads. And how we behave can activate one or other. And Luke says we can expect seasons of favour. They won the favour of all the people. And along with favour came growth. He ends this uh, ideal paragraph by saying, uh, they're praising God, enjoying all the, fa the favour of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Luke's a little bit into numbers, I must say. He's already told us at the very top of the paragraph that after Peter's sermon, uh, 3,000 were added to their number, and then he concludes the paragraph by saying, and there were more, numbers, numbers, numbers. Luke loves telling us about numbers. And this is worth remembering because um, I think Sydney Anglicans can be really resistant to the idea of growth and numbers. But just let these passages wash over you. Ready? This is Luke uh, tracking us through the story of early Christianity. So we're, there are the two references to numbers, but watch this. 4-4. Four, four. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of people grew to about 5,000. 5-14. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. 6-1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing... 6-7, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 11-21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Acts 11-24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 14-1, they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. And 17-4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Numbers. Luke is happy to celebrate numerical growth because numerical growth is just human beings being saved. The expansion of Christianity beyond the book of Acts was also incredible. Christianity starts here in Jerusalem, where our passage is, is set, but within decades, it has spread to Syria and Egypt and Greece and Italy and Asia Minor, or what we call uh, Turkey. And we have some fascinating non-Christian evidence of the Roman governor of Asia Minor complaining to Emperor Trajan about the rapid expansion of these dastardly Christians. Here's Pliny to Trajan in the year 110. The question seems to me to be worthy of your consideration, Emperor Trajan, especially in view of the number of persons endangered by Christianity. For a great many individuals of every age and class, both men and women, are being brought to trial as Christians, and this is likely to continue. It is not only the towns, but the villages and rural districts, too, which are infected through contact with this wretched cult. I think, though, 
that it is still possible for it to be checked. How wrong Pliny was. <laughs> it was not checked within 200 years. It had spread throughout Arabia and North Africa and Gaul and Spain and even among the Celts of Britain. The expansion of Christianity from the book of Acts to about the year 300 is remarkable. And one very famous Roman historian I know once said to me, it is almost miraculous what happened. No one knows. In fact, I wrote a stupidly long doctoral thesis on the topic of the Christian mission in the Roman Empire. And I have no idea how to explain the growth of Christianity. I can tell you what they did, where they popped up, but I have no explanation. Of course, Luke has the explanation. <laughs> the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, but I couldn't quite say that in the ancient history department where I did my work. Numbers. There are two very unhealthy approaches to numbers. One is, of course, the pursuit of growth over everything else, you know, where church becomes like an Amway sales pitch, okay? Uh, with apologies to anyone who's into Amway, uh, but, but you know what I mean. You know, it's sort of a humanistic business venture, growth, 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 growth. And frankly, we don't need to talk about that very much because very few Sydney Anglicans are ever, just, uh, you know, tempted by that approach to life. The second mistake is a spiritualized commitment to inertia. I have heard it said to my face, if this church grows to a certain point, I'm leaving. Someone else also said to me, it's just as important to know everyone's name as it is to see us grow. I won't tell you what I thought, but at the time I was very godly. But this is faux spirituality. It's Australian cynicism, baptized in Christian language. Here in our text, of course, we find a beautiful description of community and growth. This is a community that shared life, ate together, shared resources, made sure no one was not cared for. But also, it's where 3,000 were added and the Lord was adding daily those who were being saved. We mustn't theologize our lack of ambition. God wants faithful community and growth. I'll never forget a moment during my own church's strategy sessions as we talked through what we wanted to do over at St. Andrews Roseville. Uh, at one point, we were talking about what would be a reasonable expectation for numerical growth. And we looked back on the history of St. Andrews and just noticed, according to the records that were kept, there was about a five-year period where the church grew in numbers about 10% per annum. And so we said, look, it's happened before. What about we just do the very sensible, reasonable thing and say, what if the Lord blessed us now with 10% growth per annum? We were about 350 people at the time, and so we did the maths, and 
it would be 385 in year one, 423, 465, 511, 562. You went through the 10%, 10%, 10%. And pretty soon, it dawned on us that we'd be pushing 1,000. And there were nervous murmurs in the room. And the obvious question was, is 1,000 too many? And what I will never forget was Barb Fitzherbert in the room, 85-year Anglican, quiet prayer warrior, putting up her hand in the room and saying, it's not enough. It's not enough. And no one argued with Barb Fitzherbert. <laughs> and no one should. It's not enough. Faithfulness to God is, of course, first. But my point is, true prayer, praise, and awe will move us to long for and celebrate favor and growth. Or as I've been saying repeatedly, the more upward our vision, the more outward our ambition. May that be so here. Lord, please, will you speak to us, each one of us, from your word? Help us to know your word, to know ourselves as well and all of our own insecurities and cynicisms and, and also gifts so that, Lord, we might give ourselves first to you and then to your great cause. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.